Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, as we come to your word, uh, we pray that you would open our ears, uh, change our hearts, make us more like Jesus and more useful for you in this, your kingdom. Amen. Uh, now, I was thinking a little bit about hitchhiking on the way here for very bad reasons. It's an act of faith, really, someone to drive here and hope that they show up. I did send uh, Philip a reassurance text on the way saying, I am on my way, I am on time. Uh, but yesterday I uh, bought an old car for my daughter who's about to get a license. And bought an old car for my daughter who's about to get a license. I did think about bringing it today, but it's not tested yet. So I thought I would leave it at home and drive a reliable car. You see, hitchhiking is something that we kind of, when you're young perhaps, you might think about it. It's an ideal, you know, free and you can hitchhike and go where you want. But as you get older, hitchhiking's an inconvenience. It only happens when something's gone wrong. We're going to think a bit about the good life today. And when you think about the good life, for most of us here, I doubt hitchhiking is very high on your list. In fact, it's probably way down the bottom. Why would you hitchhike when you've got a good car? It might sound fun when you're young, but it doesn't pay the bills and it doesn't give you career satisfaction. It doesn't lead anywhere long term. But today as we look at the Psalms, we're going to see that the good life is something we get, not by lots of hard work, but by actually hitching a free ride. See, God created a good world and he put us in this world and he gave it to us to enjoy. But it does mean that if we want the good life, we're going to have to get it by following God's instructions. So we're looking at Psalm 1 and 2, which I think actually function, if you like, as an introduction to the book of Psalms together. So not just Psalm 1 on its own, but Psalm 1 and 2 together. And you've probably know from reading the Psalms that the Psalms actually really do care about the good life. And from the very start, they get us thinking about what that good life looks like and how we might get it. So Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. It's a very religious word, isn't it? Blessed. It's not the sort of word that you'd expect your neighbour or your workmate to use to describe the good life. I mean, think about it. Have you ever heard that word used kind of apart from a religious context? Your neighbour doesn't go, oh, it's such a blessed day today, the sun's shining. It just doesn't happen. And it's a religious word because it requires you to believe that there's actually someone out there who applies the blessing to you. And that's someone we know is God. And so God blesses people so that we can describe them as blessed. And you wouldn't describe it as good fortune, because that kind of takes God out of the picture. He's not fortunate, he's blessed. The man isn't lucky, luck's got nothing to do with it. Happiness might come into it, as some of the translations will translate it. But it's not necessarily a happiness that he feels, but a happy place that he's in, because he is under God's blessing. So blessed is the man, because he follows God. Verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of mockers, scoffers. Blessed is the man who does not what? It does not walk 
stand or sit. You see, you've got these three activities that the blessed man doesn't do. And basically, he just doesn't flirt with doing what's wrong. He doesn't walk, he doesn't stand, he doesn't sit. He's just not hanging around with evil. Not influenced by He doesn't spend his time learning ethics from evil people, the wicked, the skinners, the scoffers. Sorry, I've messed that up. Sinners, scoffers, mockers. There's this complete avoidance of evil. You see, this blessed man is completely and utterly disinterested in the influence of evil people. And so that sense, you might notice that he's different to me and perhaps he's different to you. You see, I wonder how far I can go with sin before it becomes sin. You know, you kind of flirt with doing the wrong thing. But he avoids it completely. He doesn't stand, walk or sit kind of in that place. Or as verse 2 suggests, he's just not delighted by evil. Evil's not his thing. Instead, verse 3, he's delighted by something totally different. And what is it? Verse 3, uh, sorry, verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Delighted by the law of the Lord. He loves God's words. He loves listening to God. And instead of loving what's evil, he loves hearing God speak. And so there's our question, how much do we love hearing God and his words? And because he loves what God says, he meditates on it and he thinks about it. And you kind of wonder, oh, how's my meditation on God's words? Uh, Once I went to a workshop to improve my habits. Uh, for me, that's always a good thing, hopefully. But it was kind of a bit weird. They got us scrunching up our ears. There's apparently nice nerve endings there. And then we were told to step into this circle, imaginary circle of light and empty our minds and meditate. Now, that's totally different to Christian meditation. Christian meditation involves thinking about something. Religions like Buddhism involve clearing your mind. And I can tell you that my problems had far less to do with too many things in my mind than not enough. Now, I doubt it, though, that many of us spend too much time thinking about God. And it's interesting, the word meditate actually comes from a mumble sort of word, a kind of verbalizing sort of word. It's not actually sit down, be quiet and just sink in your head, but it's kind of this kind of muttering, mumbling, kind of repeating stuff to yourself. So Christian meditation isn't so much just about thinking silently, but it's about making a bit of noise about it to yourself. And it's focused, what's it focused on? It's focused on the words of God, the law, the Torah, God's law or instruction. And it's God's words. That's the important thing, God's instruction. It's not just the record of how God has been good to his people. It's not just about rules but it's about the God who makes good promises. So Christian meditation, listening to God and his words, thinking about them, and they're kind of on your lips, ready to spill out. And if you're familiar with the history of Israel, you kind of remember that this is what they were told to do. What were they told? Um, Do not let this book of the Lord depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night with the result that you'll be prosperous and successful. And so we've kind of got this thing right at the start that we want to love 
the word of God. We want to keep speaking it, hearing it, thinking it. And you'll know that the Psalms are songs, and um, as an introduction then to these songs, there's an encouragement to listen and to speak and to sing the words of God. Might be a challenge for us, mightn't it? To actually think, meditate, speak, sing the words of God. And not just to do it because we have to, but because we delight in it. Because a fundamental aspect of worship is a love for the words of God. God has spoken and he's spoken to us. The blessed person listens and loves to listen. And so the good life here, the blessed life, is marked by a love for God's word. And one of the signs of that love, then, is a productive life. Verse 3, a blessed life is marked by fruitfulness. Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Got more imagery, right? A tree. And it's well watered. And he flourishes. <clears throat> it's got this great crop of fruit. It comes at the right time. The tree doesn't wither up. Whatever he does prospers. And you think, hey, I want to be like that. I want to be like that. Well watered, prosperous. But there is a problem in Psalm 1. Can you be that person? You see, there's only one blessed man in Psalm 1. And I think that's actually deliberate. Blessed is the man. One blessed man, not many. You see, when we think about it, you think, you know what, I'm not quite like that man. That one who doesn't stand, sit, walk in the company of sinners or evil. I flirt with sin. The, per- the perfection it describes doesn't describe me. Could it be me? Could it be you? And the psalm doesn't actually say. And the danger is that we'll try and be him in all the wrong ways. And so we've got to wait until the end of Psalm 2, I think, to see how it's possible for you and me to be this blessed man. And so we'll get back to that. But for the moment, having looked in verses 1 to 3 at what the blessed man is like, we're now going to look at the wicked. And without going into detail, everything the blessed man is, the wicked are not. And notice that the blessed man is singular, one man, but the wicked are plural, many people, one good man, Many wicked people. They're everything the blessed man isn't. They love the advice of the wicked. They hang with sinners. They join with scoffers. They hate the law of the Lord. And the only meditation it seems they do is to make fun of it. They're not fruitful. Instead, verse 4, they're like the leftover bits of grain, you know, when it gets rubbed together and then blown away. And in those stark terms, you think, who would want to be like the wicked? Who would want to be one of the wicked? And verse 5, because of this, they cannot stand in the judgment. They cannot stand innocent before God. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. 
See, the wicked can't stand there. It's just not their spot. They do not belong. You see, just as it would be wrong for the righteous to stand in the place of the wicked, the wicked cannot somehow choose to stand in the place of the righteous before God. And then there's good news for us here with the introduction of the righteous in verse 5. Because like the wicked, the righteous are plural. That is, there's more than one of them. The blessed man was this singular man and we couldn't be sure if we could somehow be him. But here in verse 5, we have the reassurance that there is more than one righteous person. And so there's the possibility that we might be able to join them. For just as the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, the righteous walk under the eyes of the Lord who watches over all they do. He knows the ways of the righteous and he knows the way of the wicked and the wicked cannot sneak into the wrong place that's reserved for the righteous. And that takes us to the end of Psalm 1. Important introduction, but it's coupled with Psalm 2. Psalm 1 introduces the blessed man. Psalm 2 shows us how to get there and to have the blessed life. Psalm 2 then, it starts with a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And there's the question, why, why, why do the nations rage? Nations conspire, kings plot, kings take their stand, rulers gather against. And you have seen this, haven't you? When politicians try and get rid of God from every public place, you see rebellion against God. But it's not just the leaders. We're good at blaming the leaders. But it's not just the leaders. You see, as a nation stands behind its athletes at the Olympics, so the peoples of the world take their stand behind their leaders. Against, verse 2, Yahweh, the Lord, and his anointed one. See, this is a picture of the world massing against God. The nations gathered against God, against Yahweh, the Lord, and his anointed one. And you'll notice some of your Bibles make a big deal of anointed. Uh, You see that there in verse 2. They capitalize the first letter of anointed. That's literally the Messiah. Or as the New Testament will put it, the Christ. The Old Testament uses this anointed word to describe the kings, the priests, They're they're God's anointed ones, his messiahs, his Christs. And so in the Psalms, who's the most obvious one that the peoples and the nations and the kings rebel against? They're rebelling against God and his earthly king. Then we see Psalm uh, verse verse 3, let us burst their bonds, cast away their cords, bonds, cords, chains, locks, stocks, dungeons, prisons, rules, restrictions. You see, let's break them, let's throw them off. You see, the people of God of the world deem God to be an oppressive and restrictive tyrant who needs to be overthrown. There's nothing new. The Psalms speak to today. You see, you read the papers, you see the online articles, you watch TV, you read stories and you see evidence of rebellion against God. You see, let's throw off the shackles of religion. Let's get rid of the oppressive and outdated Christian inhibitions from the past. Let's get God out of life, out of home, out of the bedroom, off TV, out of our schools, off our streets. 
out of our politics, off our university campuses. The peoples of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed one, against his Christ. And the people of Australia take their stand against God and his Christ. What about you? Where do you stand? Predictably, rebellion makes the ruler angry. God is angry. The Lord is angry. And as the books of the law show, it's his world created good, created to be ruled well on his behalf. We're used to criticizing power. We're real good at it. But absolute power is actually a great thing. When the powerful one is working for the good of his people, when the one in charge can do anything, when the one in charge knows everything, when the one in charge is all loving, that is a wonderful system to be part of. Power with knowledge and love. Power and intelligence that's committed to the good of the people. And in a system like that, the right thing to do is to submit to the all-powerfulness, all-knowingness, all-lovingness and enjoy the blessings that flow. Why rebel against someone who is working for your good and the good of everyone else? And so this ruler, verse 4, what does he do? He just laughs. He snorts, he scoffs. See the development in verse 4 and 5? He does more than that. He laughs, he derides, he scoffs, he rebukes them, he terrifies them. You see, absolute power has no need to fear a rebellion. When you are strong in power, you don't need to fear the opposition or any upstarts. He will not be overthrown, he will not lose. And the finality of the matter here seems to be the small matter of his king, verse 6 who he has placed on the throne in Zion. The placement of this king means the matter is as good as settled. So what makes it possible for the one enthroned in heaven to laugh at the kings of the world? It's this, verse 7. The one on the throne in Zion who is his son and has only to ask and the nations, the people who are opposing God, And his son, the king, will be given to him as inheritance. Verse 7 to 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The Bible history tells us, right, that King David... He was, at one point, chosen as the Lord's anointed. He reigned in Zion. He was installed in Zion. It was again that the nations gathered. David, if you like, was the face of God on earth. The ambassador, the governor general, if you like. And how you treated David was basically a reflection of how you treated God. And the New Testament wants us to see that David, if you like, is something of a warm-up for Jesus. That is, he kind of shows us how it all works and shows how God is demonstrating his power and rule on earth. But you remember David, King David. You kind of see that he never lived up to that full ideal of the righteous man, the one. And certainly his rule didn't last forever. Jesus is the bigger king. 
the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ on whom David is modeled. All the promises to David are made complete in Jesus. And the promises happen true enough with David, but so much more with Jesus. And so that is why Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm 1, who always meditated on the law of God and completely avoided sin. As Jesus tells us himself in Matthew 5.17, Jesus came to fulfill the law, to keep it completely. The blessed man, the blessed son, the blessed Messiah who is loved by God. And God speaks at the baptism of Jesus, Mark chapter 1, verse 11. A voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And so Jesus fulfills Psalm 1 and 2. He's the blessed man, the man that you and I are not. He's the man that we are not. But there is good news, more good news. Even though we're not naturally the blessed man of Psalm 1, we can be the blessed people of Psalm 2. In fact, according to Psalm 2, we can become the blessed refugees along with lots of others. Now, Psalm 2, 10 to 12, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. When you run away from something, you're a refugee. When you let go of your own power and rely on someone else, you're a refugee. If you want to share in God's power, if you want to enjoy God's power, you have to let go of your own power. Trust the king. Blessed are the refugees. Blessed are all who take refuge in in him. And God's son Jesus is a refuge, a safe place for all who come to him. It's pretty easy to misunderstand refugees, I think, um, especially if you've never had to flee anything really dangerous. Being a refugee is like fleeing a war zone. It's like fleeing a bushfire. You leave everything behind and you just get out. The danger of being Australian, oops, is um, it's easy to think we don't need God. When life is good, or it has good potential, it's easy to think that God's irrelevant. You see, for most of us, if we work hard enough, we'll do okay. But God laughs at Australia and our efforts to find the good life without him. He thinks we're a joke. If you want to worship God, you'll need to recognize his greatness, verse 11, and come and worship as a refugee. Look at those words at the start of verse 11. Serve the Lord. Worship words. And even more than that, come and fall down type word. 
Am I doing that? Pin it up here. They're a come and fall at his feet type word. They're words that put you face down on the ground, asking Jesus for your forgiveness, for your rebellion against him as you joined the nations of the world and took your stand against him. But this king isn't one that you run from, but one that you run towards. Kiss the son, verse 12, not his lips or his cheek, but his feet. Honour the son, listen to the son, obey the son, who is Jesus. You can't come with all your stuff, can't come with all your achievements. Come to him as a refugee. See, life is a journey and each one of us walks before God, enthroned in the heavens, who is the ruler of this earth. This is his world. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so you don't want to fight against God. You want to make up to Jesus. You want to be a refugee. You want to flee from the dangerous place of the wicked, the sinner, the mocker. Get away from the bushfire. Hop in a boat, hitchhike, do what you must, leave all that stuff behind and make sure you join the gathering of his righteous people standing before God with their sins forgiven, enjoying the blessed life, loving the words of God. So come to him as a refugee. Come without anything because stuff holds you back. The blessed life and the good life is not like clustering on the southern border of Israel hoping that the supplies will come in. God has everything you need in abundance and he promises you peace and he promises the good life. And the blessed life, the good life, is the life that starts when you come as a refugee to Jesus a life that can be marked by fruitfulness, by usefulness, as you get to serve him joyfully. That's the blessed life, the really good life. The good life is not measured by stuff. It's not about travelling the world. It's not defined by fun or good health. It's not defined by a good job. It's not defined by a paid-down mortgage or early retirement. It's not defined by good relationships. And it's not defined by grandkids or lawn bowls or golf. The good life, the blessed life, comes by running to Jesus and staying with Jesus, loving his words, obeying his words, and enjoying life under the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving ruler of this world who will give us what we need. He will give us the good life in abundance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know when we think about our lives that we don't meet the standard of the blessed man of Psalm 1. Even though we despise it, we often love it, that is sin and evil, and we flirt with doing what's wrong. 
And yet in your kindness, you have spoken. You have revealed yourself to this world. And you have made it possible for us to come as refugees and to flee to you for safety and security and for the good life. You have sent Jesus. He has been the blessed man, the good man that we cannot be. And he has made it possible by fleeing to him, by trusting in him, by leaving our own uh, credibility and righteousness and stuff behind, that we can be your righteous people. We praise you for that. Thank you for your goodness, your all-knowingness, your all-lovingness, that you are the ruler who is worth following. Our Father, we pray that we would love to follow Jesus, to listen to his words, to obey him, to be fruitful in our lives. And Father, we pray that you would bring many more from this place, from amongst our families, from amongst this town and the surrounding areas, to come as refugees to Jesus and to know the wonderful, blessed life that comes from joyfully submitting to Christ. Amen.